Learn from the greatest marketing minds in business, media, and entertainment. This is Marketing Legends. Here's your host, Matt Lights. What is happening, friend? Today we have got a media mogul for you. Jason Pfeiffer, editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, is going to teach you what you need to know to not only get more press, how to get more value out of it, and how to tell stories in such a way that will create real connections, maximizing every opportunity that you get. You're going to want to be here for this one. And in the meantime, if you want to check out marketinglegends.com slash Jason, we've got a whole bunch of goodies, including an audio course for Jason that you can get for as little as a dollar. So with that said, we're going to jump right in. Let's rock this thing. Jason, what is happening, my man? How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for being here. We got a lot of ground to cover. Obviously, you know, you're very well known for being the the main man, the editor in chief over there at Entrepreneur, but you do so many things. Uh, you know, right out of the gates, I'm just I'm just wondering how does a guy who is serving as the editor in chief of Entrepreneur also got so many good projects going, podcasts, books. How do you manage your time, man? How do you do all this stuff? Uh, not well, uh, is the answer. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, look, I, I have this theory about time and it is that time is like a balloon and here's what I mean. So somebody might think to themselves, you know, I would, I would do that if only I had the time, right? I, I would love to do that other project if only I had the time. But mm. the thing is that you'll never have the time. If the barrier to entry for you is I need a floating three hours in my day that's unfilled. That's never going to happen because that's not how we use time. Parkinson's law says that work expands to fit the time allotted. So whatever work you have will expand to fit the time that you have. You know how you do not fill a balloon with air? What you don't do is you don't expand the balloon so you can fit air into it, right? Uh, it doesn't, that's not how it works. That doesn't make any sense. You don't expand a balloon to fit air into it. Just like you don't somehow expand your calendar to fit more things onto it. Doesn't work like that. A balloon expands under pressure. You blow air into it, it expands. Time expands under pressure. You put more on your plate. And as a result, you don't get more hours in the day, believe me. But what you do is you force yourself to reconsider every other way that you're spending your time. So you start to think about, well, am I doing this as efficiently as possible? Is there a different way that I could structure this team or this relationship? Maybe it's time actually now to spend some money on a person who can hire me for this. Or also, you know what? This thing that I've been doing for a long time, I don't know that it's purposeful anymore. It's not mm. going to give me as much as this new opportunity will. So maybe it's time to drop it. These are hard decisions to make in a vacuum. The only way to do it, I have found, is to just add more. Time expands under pressure just like a balloon does. I love that. That's so good. Um, and I'm going to give that to my team when they get mad at me for all the things I continue to try. <laughs> We're a balloon, man. We're a yeah. balloon. <laughs> well, you got, you, got, you got to allow for changes. That's the thing, right? Like you can't, you yeah. can't tell somebody you have to do everything exactly the way that you've already been doing and do this other thing. No, instead you have to be able to give people the freedom and the flexibility to figure out how their time is best spent. Because sometimes if you're asking people to do a new thing, it means that maybe somebody else should do part of what they're doing right now. 
I think that's great. And that kind of segues really well into um, not only your book, but your podcast. And, uh, you know, if I'm understanding it, it's all about having a little bit of foresight, right? Being able to handle change as it comes at you, remaining flexible, but having the plan, uh, you know, and, and for me, as probably a pretty classic entrepreneur, you can tell me, uh, you know, if, if, if I'm different than most, I feel like much of my day to day, admittedly, is is often kind of by the seat of my pants. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. just, you know, being open and honest here. Um, and it's not that I don't make plans, but I, I do feel like I'm just kind of, so with your book and with your podcast, tell us about sort of the methodology. What's, what's Build for Tomorrow all about? So Build for Tomorrow is the name of my book. It used to be the name of my podcast, but I put that podcast on hiatus probably permanently for exactly the reason that I just described with the time management stuff. So mm. I have been working on that podcast for years. And I bet that there are a lot of people who are listening right now who have been doing something for a long time and you're not sure if you should give it up or not. And part of the reason that you keep doing it is the sunk cost fallacy. It's because you invested a lot of time that you keep going. And that had become that podcast for me, Build for Tomorrow, the podcast. I loved that podcast. I loved making it. I loved the feedback that I got from it. It created a lot of opportunities for me. And I built a little bit of my identity around it. I was really proud of it. Mm. But you know, the problem was it was an incredible time suck. And the value that I had gotten for it was starting to plateau out. And I, I didn't know what to do about that. The idea of walking away from it was so hard And one of the things that helped me was a conversation that I had with Annie Duke, who's a great author and thinker and wrote a book called Quit. And the book is about how quitting can be a great decision-making strategy and how we we shouldn't think of quitting as failing. Sometimes quitting is actually just giving ourselves the opportunity to best spend our time on something else. Because when you quit something that's not working, what you're really doing is allowing you to use that time in potentially more prosperous ways. And she had said to me, you know, imagine if you had to marry the first person that you dated. Imagine if you had to marry the first person that you dated. What would you do? She's like, I'll tell you what you'll do. You wouldn't date anybody, right? Like you wouldn't date anybody because you wouldn't want to commit to that. Um, but why are we able to find, hopefully, the person who is right for us? The answer to that is because we are able to quit a lot of people. We're able to try and we're able to walk away. And she said, You are dating ideas and you're dating projects and you're dating jobs and you're dating careers. And Sometimes these are great, and sometimes you need to walk away from them, and that's okay. And for me, the moment came to walk away from that podcast when a friend, my friend Nicole Lappin, who's a best-selling money expert, she came to me and said, hey, I, I'd like to start a podcast with you. Um, she's she's starting a, a podcast company called Money News Network, and she wanted me to help grow that company, help build that company with her, and then also to co-host a show. And this sounded like a greater opportunity to me. This was 
working with a trusted partner. This was more resources. Nicole was bringing on a producer, whereas I was doing everything myself on the other show. And I realized this is the moment where I add something new and it creates pressure and it forces me to consider and reconsider the things that I'm already doing. And the answer had to be that this other show that I loved had run its course. It had provided so much to me and now it was time to say goodbye. And so anyway, the new show is called Help Wanted and it comes out twice a week. And crazy enough, we make eight episodes a month and the other show, I only got out one episode a month. And this one takes me a lot less time and has a lot more impact. These are the decisions that we have to make. Mm, give something good up for something great. Yeah. And it, and I and I thank you for sharing this because most of the time we spend, you know, on hey, what's this new thing? Um, but I can tell you I, I had I owned a company one time called boardgames.com and mm. it was following a passion of of board games and I had this really, you know, I wanted to bring people together around the table. And I probably held on to that one, much like a relationship. I thought your relationship analogy was perfect. Mm, Probably stayed in that relationship about a year (laughs) too long. You know, I I burned at least $100,000 of my own money I didn't need to burn. Um, But it's a hard thing. And and so much of it is, you know, I think it is ingrained in us. Like we don't want to fail because it's it's almost like you hear this never quit mantra so long. You know, it's just like, never quit, never quit, never quit, never quit. And, you know, I think it was a lot of pride too. I just didn't want to, you know, be known as a, as a, as a failure, but in hindsight, um, it, it, you know, you're on here sharing your story. It's these stories that really, I think make us much wiser. And it, and it, even though it was a failure, like it, it has become this great part of, you know, my story and my experience, you know, and, and to be able to say, Hey, you know, if I'm going to fail, at least I failed with some style, you know, and, 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 and did yeah. It. And, you know, here's the thing is like, okay, maybe you failed at that pursuit, that very specific thing. If you narrow the way in which you evaluate that experience enough so that the question is, did this very specific effort lead to a very specific result? And the answer is no, then you could say it was a failure. But that's not actually how things fit into the overarching story of our lives. Because everything that we do actually leads to whatever it is that we do next. And it's all a learning experience. And I think oftentimes the reason that people are afraid of walking away from something is because they think that it means that they have to hit reset. That if they leave this job mm. that they don't like, but they're staying in, it's it, they'll have to start over somewhere else. They'll start at the very bottom. We'll have to reskill. But you know, the thing is, like, it's it's you're not giving up everything that you you done before. You're building on top of it. That's what you're actually doing. And, and I mean, you know, like, look, you're good at something. I'm good at something. You just tested it against the real world. Maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. Whatever it is, you kind of helped build more of a body of knowledge around it. And 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 that's that stays with us and it comes with us and no matter where we go. And so, yeah, fine. You started the board game company and it didn't work out, but that's only one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that you started the board game company and that thing didn't work out, but it taught you some incredible lessons that you then implemented in the next thing that you did. And that was a success because of what you did with board games, at which uh-huh. point board games is actually just a part of that longer story. And we need to think about things like that. I, I, I can't think of my own podcast, for example, as, well, it was a failure because it didn't become the Joe Rogan show and make me millions of dollars. 
but what if what it really did was it taught me a lot about podcasting and it helped me refine my speaking style and it put me in touch with a lot of people who are going to be useful in other parts of my career. And it inspired my book. And, 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 you know, look, you can't stand on every spot of ground forever. You have to walk away from it at some point so that you can get on new ground. And that doesn't mean that the old ground wasn't useful or that it was a failure or that it was a regretful thing that you did to stand there in the first place. No, it just was part of your journey. I love it. Um, so as, as the editor in chief of entrepreneur magazine, when I got the opportunity to speak with you, I probably came with similar questions that a lot of people ask because I just, you know, as early in my days reading entrepreneur magazine, like, how do I get my name into these pages? So I asked the probably, you know, typical question of, you know, what, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's trying to get into a, a media outlet like entrepreneur or other major media sources? I mean, the first question that you need to ask yourself is, why do you want that? And and I, I don't mean that. I mean, look, we could talk about that from like an emotional standpoint, because I think a lot of people just seek validation through these things. And I don't think that's very healthy. But uh, But from a tactical standpoint, why do you want that? Because press almost certainly is not going to get you whatever you dream that it will. It just won't. I'm just being straight up. Like if you think that a story in Entrepreneur Magazine is going to change your business, you're wrong. It won't. Uh, it, it, it might get you uh, some new customers. Uh, it might get somebody useful to reach out to you. It, it, maybe, but it is not the panacea. And I think that people misunderstand that. They also think that it's just a part of the journey, like that. Oh, I've reached this point. I hear this from people all the time. I, you know, I've been working really hard, and uh, you know, I, it's just it's time to share my story. Uh, I've been working really hard, and I just I deserve this. Why? Why? And and and, and the re- the reason I say it like this is because um, this is a very uncontrollable situation for you, um, right? There's no you can't buy it. You can buy advertising. That's very controllable. Uh, you can't buy press. You can't buy good press. You could find some crappy website. It'll take your money, but there's no point to that. So you can't buy it. And there's a limited amount that you can do to convince somebody to write about you. Right? You can send a pitch. Um, you can try to build up a relationship with an editor, but it's ultimately going to be their decision. And it's going to feel kind of arbitrary. Uh, somebody's going to say, you know, I think that this is uh, useful to our audience and this isn't, or this interests me and this doesn't. And it's just, it's, it's, it's so uncontrollable. So if you have limited resources and limited time, um, sometimes I think pursuing press is actually not the greatest spend of those things. Sometimes it is, and it can be part of a part of a healthy, uh, holistic strategy. Um, but if I were looking for press for something that I was doing, the first thing that I would think is, why, why do I need this? And there are good answers to that. Maybe it's I uh, it's a, a customer acquisition. I, I want to reach more consumers in this space, or maybe it's I'm about to go out and raise some money and I need some social validation. So that's good. Uh, and then the next question has to be, well, okay, which publications are going to get me that specific thing that I'm looking for? So, you know, so the people keep, people keep pitching me their product companies, um, to try to get written about an entrepreneur. I, I mean, I, you know, sometimes we write about them if, if we feel like there's a useful story for our readers, but, um, I, I always wonder like, why are you doing that? Because you're not going to get any sales out of this. I just, I, I, I can tell you, you're not. So, um, 
I feel like you're kind of wasting your time. You should, you know, if you're if you're selling gym equipment, you should be pitching men's health. Why are you pitching entrepreneur? Uh, because ultimately, you want to think of it as strategic as possible. Press is a tool, just like any other tool, and um, it's just uh, one of the least controllable ones. I appreciate your candor in that. I, you know, I think many people in your position would just say, "Oh, because it's the greatest thing to do to get into my magazine." But it's my experience has been, you know, much the same. Uh, spent a lot of energy going out, getting on TV, and and at the end of the day, just to be to be blunt, for me, the biggest value has been able to to see as seen on totally. You know, and, and, so that I think that's that's kind of a you know a cool thing, but um, I think you're right. It's, it's something you can't control. I mean, if you can put that energy into an advertisement that you can spend money at at scale, that's predictable. You know, it works or it doesn't work. But it just, uh, it's just so much wasted energy into to those type of marketing. That's the hoping you know maybe something will happen. When the reality of it is, even success doesn't always mean success. So I think that's no. a, a, a and, great and perspective. And I, I just, I like, I feel that people, if, if what you just said there uh, didn't sound obvious to people, then like spend an extra second thinking about it, right? You said that the, some of the greatest value that you got from press was being able to say as seen on, which is to say that the greatest value from the press didn't actually come from the coverage itself. Yeah. It didn't come from the cover. It didn't come from the people who read it. It came from you just being able to use it as social proof. And once you think of it like that, there are like all sorts of other things that you can do because you know, you know what people try to do all the time is that they pitch themselves as if they are the centerpiece, right? They just want a profile on them. Everybody wants a big old profile, but you know, if all you really need is to be able to say as seen on, then, uh, you know, spend some time on Haro, uh, help a reporter out, uh, which is a website where people not, you know, not everybody does reporters from the New York times are not doing this, but you know, like random people from, from a bunch of outlets, uh, will, um, We'll post and they'll say, I'm looking for somebody to help me, uh, you know, who, who can comment on, uh, you know, the, uh, the state of mortgages today or whatever random thing. And, uh, and if you have something to say, reach out, um, they probably get a million emails, but they might, they might be interested and they might quote you in their story. And, uh, you, you appear in one paragraph, but now you get to say as seen in Forbes or as seen in the Associated Press or something like that. And uh, and then that by itself can be useful because you can build that out on your website and it just gives you that kind of marketplace legitimacy. But again, interestingly, that didn't your value didn't come from the thing that the reporter wrote and it didn't come from anybody who read it. It came from what you were able to do, which again goes back to thinking about what can you control versus what you can't control. Love it. Love it. And I, and I think this is great advice. The last thing I want to ask about this, because in this should be one of those obvious things, but for whatever reason, it really hadn't crossed my mind. I, I said specifically, I said, what type of story is Entrepreneur Magazine looking for? Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you've given this answer several ways, but your answer was something along the lines of, we look for stories of business owners who have unexpected and dramatic breakthroughs that come in ways that they can then teach that breakthrough for other entrepreneurs to learn. All right. It was, it was something along those lines. Yeah. Right? I mean, that, that, that's more or less the guiding principle of the print magazine. Uh, entrepreneur.com is, is, is a little more diffuse, but yeah, what we're looking for are stories that are ultimately useful to the person who's reading the magazine, which means that I, have to think of it like this. Entrepreneur Magazine is a resource for people. 
if you're picking up the magazine, like people, you need to think about this. If you're trying to get press or you're trying to do anything, you have to think about the needs of the audience, not your own needs. And so, because when people pitch media, God, I'll tell you, like what they do over and over again is they're incredibly focused on what they want. They want out of this. I mean, sometimes people are just incredibly transparent about it. You know, can I get a story in Entrepreneur Magazine? It would really help my business. Yeah, well, okay, maybe it would, but like that's that's not a good reason for me to run a story about it. We're like, I'm not a service provider over here. It's like handing handing out opportunities. I'm thinking about my reader and what my reader needs, and what my reader needs is help in their own thing. Right? Nobody picks up Entrepreneur Magazine to just be like, I'd like to see what other people are succeeding with because I want to feel good for them. That's not what the hell people think. It's not how you think listening to this right now. You don't pick up a magazine to be like, I just want to see someone else's success story. No, you're picking it up because you're trying to build your own success story. So that means that the story that you're reading has to be useful to you, which means that when I run a story about somebody, uh, some company, what I really have to do is make sure that even though this is an article technically about this company, it's really a, an article about the reader. What, and the way I'm going to do that is that I'm going to select stories in which someone did something or thought through a challenge or came to some insight. And I think that by other people understanding that and then getting that person to articulate how they thought through the challenge, being really open about that challenge, and then revealing the solution that other people who are reading this can say, oh, that's really smart. That's really helpful. That helps me think about how I can solve this problem for myself. And so as a result, when people are just focused on their success, when they're really anchoring themselves to talking points, when they're not able to be introspective, that is not a story for us. Because what we're really doing at all times is we're serving the reader, not the person we're writing about. Love it. And, that, and to me, that's the most basic marketing premise that there's so, so many people are just kind of failing to grasp that. You know, why does Google show a result? Because they want to show the best darn results that they can for their yeah. searchers so they continue to use them instead of somebody else. That's right. So I really, really appreciate that. And one thing that, you know, the more I dig into, I just realized that you put a lot of emphasis and energy into your storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, you know, regardless of what you're trying to get across, whether you're trying to get press or you're trying to run advertisements or sell a product on a page, storytelling is one of those arts that, you know, no matter how fancy our AI technology gets, I, I do believe is going to be one of our, our human capabilities. That's very special. Do you have any, anything you'd like to share just about great storytelling? Oh, well, sure. I could talk about storytelling forever. So maybe direct me a little bit more, but I'll say to start that people understand things through story. It's how our brains are wired. We are we are narratively driven creatures. Uh, I mean, I, I think there's a there's a reason why we have stories across time that have explained every part of the unknown world, right? I mean, like why why have as as far back as we have written uh, writings back to the Sumerian times, why are there narratives about how the world was created, uh, narratives about the forces around us that create the world. It's because we don't understand things in terms of bullet points and facts and figures. We, we understand things in terms of stories. And so if you want to help people remember things, you need to tell it to them in a narrative that connects with them, that 
then can engage not just their intellect, but also their emotions. And I find this to be the perhaps single greatest skill that I've developed. And it's not, I'm not some special person. I just am in the business of telling stories. Anybody can do this, but you need to be thinking about at all times, how do you move people through information? And then how do you give them something and then give them a way to understand it? I mean, I can mm. stand on stage and tell you a good marketing principle about, about you know, I mean, one of the ones that I I, I love from my book, Build for Tomorrow, is uh, is is called the Bridge of Familiarity, and you know, I can tell you uh, conceptually about the Bridge of Familiarity. You won't remember it. You won't remember it because it's going to be abstract. But if I tell you the story of the bridge of, I mean, like when I talk, uh, when I give, when I give a keynote, uh, the bridge of familiarity is often like a kind of segment that I do. Here's how I structure it. I introduce the idea of the problem, uh, of bridge of familiarity, which at this point I should probably tell you what it is, but I'll tell you the structure first. And then I, sh I would say, I want to, you know, let me show you how this played out. And then I tell a completely unexpected story about the dawn of the automobile and a mistake that early car manufacturers made in marketing the car. And then after that, I say, well, let me, now let me bring it to the present time. And then I tell this story about this, um, this uh, snack brand and, uh, and how they also applied the bridge of familiarity. And then I bring it back and I kind of repeat the main message. Now you remember it. Now you remember it because you remember those stories, right? And um, something that is important to understand about how people remember things. Uh, I've talked to I've talked to, I'm really interested in how people think. I've talked to a bunch of brain researchers and people who study how people learn is um, fuse this word into your brain. Um, <laughs> as I say, fuse this word into your brain, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the word myself. It's not structure. It is scaffolding, scaffolding. So scaffolding is the way in which we remember things, which is to say that we attach new information to existing information that we have in our heads. That's how we remember things. So if somebody tells you something new about something that you know a lot about, you're probably able to remember it because you're able to affix it to existing information. If somebody tells you something fascinating about black holes and you don't know anything about black holes, you're going to forget it five minutes later because it doesn't affix to anything that you already have. Stories are a brilliant way for us to affix to existing knowledge because everyone understands things through stories. I tell you a story about something, it immediately reminds you of another story, of another person or another something that was just like that. And now you have an association in your brain. And because my big idea is attached to my story, my big idea has now entered your brain in a way in which if I just told you the big idea, it wouldn't attach to anything because it doesn't stick to the scaffolding. Mm. That's powerful. I love that. I love that. So, in uh, just to the way that you structured the, uh, you know, I've got a point, right? And yeah. this is kind of an abstract thought. You gave it a name, right? Yeah. What, what was it one more time? The principle? Oh, yeah. So, so, I always, every time that I offer a big idea, I give it a name. It's really important because it, it brands it, it makes it feel ownable, but also it makes it feel like a unit of information. And then it feels kind of more special. So, in this case, it was the bridge of familiarity. Perfect. So the bridge of familiarity. So here we have a, a concept. So you're, and let me teach you what this is. And then you didn't just give one story, you gave two stories. Right. Right. A classic story that's like, okay, get it. And then you fast forward it. I mean, I've never really taught that way. I think it's absolutely brilliant because now, 
you know, it's, it's, I'm not even having to try to make the connection. I mean, it's literally, you got two examples. I'm going to connect it guaranteed. And it's probably, I doubt it's even twice as effective. It's probably 10 times more effective. The fact that you've reiterated with multiple stories and then you come back and you teach it again. So rather than I'm just thinking of a young me giving a presentation, jamming more ideas and concepts into it, doing fewer concepts a lot deeper so that somebody's leaving having like not just remembered it, but owned it, understood it and ready to apply it in their life. That's right. So my typical structure is actually big idea with a name, story of someone else who figured it out, story of me figuring it out. And uh, I don't always do that every time. But the reason why I do me is because then I get to be the stand in for the audience. So by me telling my story, I get to relate to the audience. I get to be the st- I, I get to be the actor in the situation that I've just laid out so that the audience can watch me as I tell the story of me learning how to do something. Uh, I mean, I've done that a couple times here. I mean, like at the very beginning when we kicked off and I went into uh, time is like a balloon, right? That, 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 that's this, right? People ask me about time management. I came up with this concept. Uh, time is like a balloon, right? So now it's got a name. Um, I tell you the little balloon analogy, which is great. And then I tell you about me doing something, which in this case, I I, I talked about the podcast. Um, and it's more memorable that way than if I just gave you some flat, you know, here's uh, 10 different things to know about time management. People don't remember that. But sometimes, you know, it doesn't have to be always a story about me. Sometimes I find that particularly if I'm, if I'm telling stories from history, I love using stories from history because they're unexpected. And uh, as a result, people have absolutely no like preconceived notions about it. They're not attaching any kind of existing beliefs about it, right? If, if I launch into a story about a snack food brand um, and I show you the packaging from the snack food, you're instantly like analyzing it. And you're deciding what you like and what you don't like. And you're like making decisions about it. But if I just rewind 150 years, you don't know anything. And now it's just fresh. And so I tell you the story from history, which is fun and interesting and surprising. Uh, in this case, why people hated the car and how the uh, early automobile manufacturers got people to like cars. And then, and then I take that same principle and then I apply it to the snack food brand, at which point I can have some fun with now you're applying this concept that I have to something that you feel like you have more of an area of expertise on. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, to just double click on what you said about like fewer ideas, uh, when people hire me to speak, depending on how much time they give me uh, on stage, you know, between, usually between like 30, 30 and 60 minutes, I'll, I'll, I will do an intro and then I'll do either three or four ideas. That's it. Three or four ideas. And each of those ideas, again, is it's a big idea with a name and a story. And then, uh, and then, so then often an exercise at the end, a kind of take home way to then apply the idea. Uh, and then I move on to the next and, and I consistently get feedback from people who say, thank you for not overwhelming us with information. Thank you for not like throwing a million bullet points. I got zero bullet points in my deck. Uh, Thank you for not like throwing a million things at us. Thank you for telling us these stories that we're engaging to listen to. And the principles that you gave us are things that we can utilize. And, you know, I'm walking away. I gave you like four, four or five things to think about. It's not a lot, but you're going to remember them as opposed to giving you 80 that you don't remember. 
That's huge, huge, huge value. And I, I do want to play off one thing that you just said and, sure. and kind of use this because you've been super generous with your time. This has been amazing. Um, you, you said in, in working with a client, how you can make it fun. And I uh, heard you say one time that being silly is a good business strategy. Oh, yeah. uh, I thought that was was so cool. Um, ex- explain that. Why Why is... Why do you feel like kind of being a little bit goofy, mixing it up? How, why does that work? How does it work? Well, so I find that it works for me because it subverts people's expectations of me. Right? You know, if, you, if all you know of my work is that I am the editor-in-chief of a national magazine and maybe that I wrote a book or something, it's likely that you think that I am going to be a serious or at least self-serious person. And I'm not, but also I find that people, people have an interesting relationship to uh, uh, figures of authority. And I don't mean figures of authority, like police officers. I just mean, you know, like people who are considered authorities in a space or something, which is that um, they respect them but they don't feel close to them. And when the person does something to make themselves seem really approachable, it always subverts the expectation and it makes the audience like them more, feel feel closer to them, feel like, oh, you're just like me, except you spend time figuring this stuff out. And therefore, I trust you more because you're like me, because I can see me in you and I can see you in me. and. To me, it just it makes it makes no sense to hide that stuff. It's, it's all you're doing is taking away one of your advantages. So, I have always, in my public presentation, mixed between I I, I want to speak with authority, right? Like you don't want to you don't want to be silly in a way that makes you seem demeaned, but you want to be game. You want to be light. You want to be fun. Um, if that comes naturally to you, if it doesn't, don't try to force it because ultimately what you're going to do is you're going to open the door for people to come in and connect with you and say, I, I like you more because you seem like a regular person, even though you're also someone who I look to for information. And, you know, I, I, I don't know, I'll leave it to a psychologist to, to say why people like that, but I have just found that they do. And that works pretty well for me because I don't want to get up and be some self-serious person. I, I, when I when I show up to speak, I show up in a in a in jeans and a t-shirt because uh, I don't want to seem like a fancy person. I want to seem I want to seem like I'm just like a, I'm just like you. But I I spent some time working on some stuff. Love that, and and I think it's it also kind of relieves a lot of pressure too. Uh, a lot of times, I, I I think when people are kind of new to business or marketing. They, they create this pressure of, I have to look good, you yeah. know, all the time. And I, I've found that it is so much more valuable. And yes, you do need to mix it up. I like the way that you put that, right? You don't want to just come out and be a goofball. Nobody's going to take you serious. But it's an amazing thing that happens when I will always go out of my way to mention a failure or be silly or tell a horrible joke before I brag about, you know, making the ink list multiple years in a row or, you know, like it's, it's almost like every time that you do that, you then get the potential to actually 
share something that makes you look good because it's so it, it kind of gets people who are like this and gets them to to lean towards you a little bit. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I, it's so interesting speaking because you get to watch an audience in real time react to you. And um, I always find that it's about four minutes into the talk where the people who seemed reluctant start to warm. And it's usually around a moment where I've told this story about my family being displaced during the pandemic. We, we lived in a small apartment at the time um, in Brooklyn and uh, a two bedroom thousand square foot apartment. My wife and I, we had two little kids and we were just like, I don't, I don't know how to get locked into this place for an indefinite amount of time. So we went and we moved in with my parents and um, you know, I always make this, I always say, so, you know, then we were 40 year olds living with my parents, which felt great. And everybody laughs. And, uh, and then I, um, and then I tell this, this story about me trying to find some kind of sense of meaning or purpose in that displacement. And it's in, it's in that particularly there's this moment where I get kind of quiet and, um, that, that I see the people who seemed perhaps skeptical of me to start to lean in and then I get them the rest of the talk. And, uh, and I think that tells you something, right. Which is, um, you know, look, I, I, I think that everybody very reasonably, I do it, you do it. Everybody, every time they, they interact with anything new, whether it's a person or a thing, they ask a question. And the question is, is this for me or is this not for me? And um, I think that if you're presenting anything, whether you're presenting yourself or you're a marketer presenting a product, like whatever it is, you have to anticipate that question and then try to answer it as fast as possible. And uh, I find that particularly if the thing that you're presenting is yourself and you want people to answer, yes, this is for me, then you need to bring everything that you have and humanity, your own humanity is a pretty big part of that. Agreed. Well, uh, you've been super generous with your wisdom here, my man. If you were to leave with one parting shot for all the entrepreneurs and marketers out there, maybe just some quick words of encouragement, what would you like to share? Uh, so, you know, what I have obnoxiously not done is explained the bridge of familiarity, um, which, which I'll say, uh, I have a whole chapter on it in my book, which is called build for tomorrow, which I would love for people to check out, but I will tell you the, 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 the sort of very basics of it. And then you can go find the stories and whatever later, because I do think this is really important for marketers. Um, so the, 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 the bridge of familiarity is, is based on this, this observation that I had, which is that I think that the, the, the most, common and dangerous mistake that people make when they're trying to introduce something to other people, whether you're an innovator or you're a marketer, uh, the mistake that you make is that you are so familiar with the value of the thing that you have made or are involved with or about to market. You're so familiar with the value of that, that you forget that it may not mean anything to anybody else. And so the way in which you're going to try to talk to them is you're going to try to hammer in on what you understand the value to be. But that may be completely disconnected to how they understand value or what they need. And so you instead need to step back and understand how they think and how they talk and where they are right now 
and then build a bridge of familiarity, starting with them, what they're comfortable with, what they're familiar with. Build a bridge from them to you rather than from you to them. Mm, all right. We'll leave with that mic drop moment. You demand, <laughs> Jason. Thank you so much. Again, build for tomorrow. Uh, appreciate your time, buddy. And, and you know, thank you for all the work uh, for all of us entrepreneurs out there uh, on your magazine. We truly appreciate it. And uh, can't wait to tune into the new podcast. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. So, yeah, and I got that new podcast called Help Wanted. I'll throw you, I'll throw one more thing at you, which is just, uh, I write a weekly newsletter and it's called One Thing Better. And each week I give you one way to improve your work to build a career or company you love. And you can find that at One Thing Better. That's O N E. One Thing Better. Email, which is an actual web address, just One Thing Better. Email. Anyway, thanks so much. Thank you. Man, I hope you learned as much from that episode as I did. Jason held nothing back. So much good stuff in there. And speaking of good stuff, when you go to marketinglegends.com slash Jason, again, that's marketinglegends.com slash Jason, you're going to get a massive bonus package, including an audio training that Jason put together that's going to teach you how to take a lot of this and put it to action in the real world. And in the meantime, what you're doing is supporting amazing cause an amazing organization that Jason supports called City Harvest, which is going to get those people that need food, the nourishment that they need while we're giving you the nourishment that you need for your brain to go out and make the most of your business and every opportunity that you get. So with that said, hopefully you've enjoyed the episode. If you have, please tell somebody, you know, spread the love, lead us a review, whatever you got to do, just make sure you don't miss the next one. I appreciate you and can't wait to talk to you on the next episode. This has been Marketing Legends. Go big, give back, be legendary.